See how much? I, I really wasn't trying to do the math, but thank you. Yeah. You were way off. I didn't say you were 60. I said you looked good for a 60-year-old. <laughs> anyway. You can't get yourself out of that. No, not really. <laughs> so I'm moving along. Oh, there we go. That's what I was waiting for. The pop-up window. Anyway, so we're going with the church history, finishing off the Age of Enlightenment here. And we're talking about some of the changes that have been going on and how some of those changes are affecting things. So today, today we're going to talk a little bit more about things that, that changed, the new ideas basically that changed the landscape with things. Um, in some ways, it's another one of those weeks, I was just talking to Wendy, it's another one of those weeks where you say, well, it's not a lot directly about church history, but I can't, I can't get past some of the things that are going on here because they will end up having worked on church history. Now it will make sense as Anyway, so, 1752, Ben Franklin invents the lightning rod. Very exciting, very exciting, all right? Let me clarify, because i got to stop and talk about this, because I remember growing up and people saying some of the weirdest things about Ben Franklin. Before I go any further, i got to stop and clarify. Number one, he did not invent electricity. That was the, that was the thing I hear all the time from, like, kids. That ben Franklin invented electricity. I'm like, no, God invented electricity, right? Ben Franklin didn't even discover electricity because they'd known about that for thousands of years. Uh, the, the ancient Greeks talked about uh, of electrical shocks, electrical attraction, etc. He may never have even done the, the classic kite trick thing. I'm telling you, it, well, okay, A, he did, like I said, he did write about doing an experiment like that and why it should work. How would you go about doing it? Um, you can totally kill yourself doing what uh, what he was trying to do here. What was he trying to do in the experiment, whether he ever actually did it or not? Anybody know? Yeah, yeah. What he was hoping is, you know, if you get enough, if you get enough moisture on the string in a lightning storm, and you have some kind of metallic object, what it's going to do is draw the lightning down via uh, via conductor. And you'll see that the key uh, has electrical attraction. Actually, the, it's hard to, but if you get the string wet, wet enough, if it's wet enough, but if it's wet enough and you're holding it, there's a good chance you die if you get hit by lightning. So it's kind of an idiot. There actually you have been people. Burn the string up oh, gosh, yeah. Actually, there was a guy um, in this time period that, that did, we know, did Ben Franklin's experiment and didn't die. But came close to it, so it was—it's a little dangerous. I think Mythbusters did this one time, but I haven't seen that episode. But apparently, they did—they did it, and they said hard to do, possible, but then you'll die. You know, so anyway, he probably didn't do this experiment, but the idea that he was trying to do was to show that lightning is actually electricity, and that's the thing that people don't, don't realize. What what people knew about electricity was that if you, if you rub stuff, there was a charge, things would attract other things. And he's like, I think that's electricity. People are just like, no, 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 no. It's light from the sky. Electricity is that kind of tingly, staticky stuff. I think this is it. Because you don't think of seeing electricity. No, especially not back then. I mean, ever since they made movies like Frankenstein, you see the little crackles, you know, between. We think of electricity, we think of lightning and crackles. They didn't think of it that way. What he did do was prove that lightning is part of what they referred to at the time as electrical fluid. There's this fluid that has electrical properties, i.e. it conducts, uh, it, it, it attracts to one another, it, it does that kind of stuff. And we know he did experiments with lightning rods, where he sunk a, 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 like a, a metal or iron, iron rod into the ground, drawing the lightning and then dissipating it into the ground. It's like, we can actually control this. We can actually direct this. So he came up with the idea of putting lightning rods onto homes and buildings to safely discharge electrical strikes, lightning strikes. He put it on sailboats, too. Did he? Uh, no. Oh. Mean, nowadays, oh, you ground it, otherwise you can really mess up stuff. Absolutely. I mean, because what it does, it, instead of it hitting your house, hitting your chimney, hitting your whatever, it hits the lightning rod, goes down, and goes into the ground. And it's safe. Lightning strikes... Anything tall, I love some of these pictures. This lightning striking 
Statue of Liberty, lightning strikes anything tall and conductive. It strikes buildings all the stinking time. And lightning strikes still cause a lot of fires in homes if they're not properly grounded, especially in like construction sites. If you if you're still have your construction site, your home is 90% completed, but you haven't put in some sort of lightning rod system yet, it's very susceptible to this sort of thing. So it's really dangerous. So it's kind of a big deal, but people thought he was nuts. They're like, wait, you're attracting lightning? You want lightning to strike the house? And that's how you're going to prevent it from striking the house? You're an idiot. You do see why that sounds bizarre, right? But he's like, yeah, but it's going to be striking houses anyway. What I'm trying to do is control and direct how it does it. But to do that, I actually have to attract it. They're, they're like, you're crazy. The reason I bring all this up, A, so that you understand lightning, but also to realize Ben Franklin isn't afraid of doing stuff that everybody else says is crazy. Right? You're thinking out of the box. That is not the way to do this. I kind of like Ben Franklin. Yeah. I once, uh, my friend who used to go here, Kim Teeth, he told he got a shock on this sailboat. I thought, no, it's probably a rough thing on the wire in the back. Supports the so I went over and touched the motor, and I got a shock. And then I was to teach someone some sailing that afternoon, a mother in their boat, and she mentioned she had gotten a shock that day. And there was no, it was way out in Morton. It was clear here. It was just static electricity. Yep. But uh, I learned a little different. I yep. have a wire now that I did hook up, put it in the water. Good. Rather go through me. Yeah, that's good call. Good call. I I got uh, I got a good shock one time from a break in electrical wire when I was buffing a floor as a, as a custodian, and everything was all wet, and the wire was all wet, and I was standing in the wet, and I was coiling up the 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 uh, the wire or the, the the cord while it was still plugged in, and yeah, that wasn't any fun. Anyway, so seventeen fifty two, seventeen fifty three. Speaking of strange ideas. A guy named George Barclay passed away, and he had had some very interesting ideas. He was an Irishman, born in Kilkenny. He had become a priest in the Church of Ireland in 1721, and he was a philosopher. He had been influenced by people like Rene Descartes, um, and, and I, I've been, I want you to try to remember, if you can, some of the stuff we talked about with these guys. Descartes, if you remember, had, had argued, all we really know are the thoughts and ideas we have bouncing around in our head. It's the only thing we really know. You don't know anything else just naturally. I don't know that this is a podium. I don't know that you guys exist. All I know is what I think. He's the guy that said, Kogi took ergo sum. I think, therefore, I, I must exist. I at least know that much. I think, therefore, I am. Based on what I think, what else can I figure out about the world around me? But rather than just assume that I understand everything easily, I need to stop and go back and go, what do I actually know? and base everything off of what I actually know. Okay? Blase Pascal, who was a contemporary of Descartes, said, No, Descartes, you're, the, you're in danger of just throwing God out entirely. You're missing the point that we, what we do know about God. The core of everything is not what we understand. The core of everything is that God is in control of all things, that God has created everything. Stop and think about your faith before you stop and think about your brain. Make sure you don't screw that part up. He was also influenced by the writings of John Locke, who we talked about not too awful long ago. Locke said, okay, kind of the anti-Descartes in some ways. He said, Descartes says, well, at our core, there are some innate ideas and understandings. And Locke says, actually, all your innate ideas and understandings, they're not innate. They're based on what you see around you. So where Descartes says, I have to decide what I see around me based on what I think, Locke says, you decide what you think based on what you see around you. You look around and you say, that looks like a chair. I'd like to sit down. I'm calling that a chair. That's the way I perceive it. Locke's point was, all these things that we assume, well, of course men are smarter than women. Of course white people are better than black people. Of course rich people should rule. It's like, <laughs> you seem to think that these, are, these innate ideas are... Are, are, are core and foundational. I'm telling you, they're all interpretations. You're reading those into the stuff that you see around you. If you can stop and question some of that, you can change your perceptions. Now, not going too far, which of these guys is right? Yes. 
is a healthy philosophy something where it builds with some of these things that that what we perceive is based on what we think, but what we think is based somewhat on what we perceive as well? Do we need to make sure that in amongst all of that thinking, cogitating, perceiving, looking around us, that we're also taking God in consideration? Hume, later on, Hume, if you remember, we talked about this just the other day. He says, well, if all we really know is what we see and interpret about the natural world, then to read God back into that, to pretend that there's some sort of supernatural God, supernatural God outside of nature, that's just irrational. We can obviously blow off the idea of God because really, really, all we know is what we see. That's irrational. Why? Because the things that we see couldn't exist without some outside source because they're too complicated and they couldn't have just risen naturally. Oh, now you get into your whole balance of how things are. Watchmaker junk. Yeah, no, he's not even trying to get into that. He's not even trying to get into that. He's just going, yeah, but but if if all I know about this podium is what I see, feel, God help me, taste, you know, if I lick the podium, you know, if that's all I know, then to say, and there must be some sort of invisible gremlin that made this podium. No, no, some material person made this. Something within the same material world made this. Here, you stick around for partly. But, but, but David Hume is just saying, Everything I know about the material world works within the material world. The material world perpetuates itself. Stephen Hawking has recently said the same sort of thing. He said, the physical laws of the universe make everything work just fine, therefore we don't need God, therefore there must not be a God. Which itself is just bad logic. Not, not even that I disagree with his conclusion, but the logic itself is bad. Anytime you say, well, I don't need, I don't need coffee, therefore coffee does not exist. What? That's your logic? Plug in a different variable, Stephen. I don't think you'll see that that works. Anyway, 1710. Barclay published a book called A Treatise Concerning the Principles of Human Knowledge. And he suggests a new way of thinking that flips Locke around, tries to give a basis, a, a, a philosophical religious basis for Descartes, argued against the natural humanism of Hume. He's like, I got a different way of looking at this. What if? Since all that we know is based on what we already know, and what we understand is based on what we already understand, what if there is no material world as such? Everything that we see around us, what if, what if it, there is nothing outside of what we actually perceive? Everything that exists only appears to exist because we believe that it exists. Yeah, okay. Oh, you know. No. Alright, just bear with me for a second as to what he's saying. That's not... That's kind of an over-summary of what he's saying. Things do exist, but they exist on a cognitive level. They exist in your mind. They exist because they're being perceived. And we only process that as being physical things, because that's just the words that we would put to it. Because we are also cognitive things. We, we exist perceptionally, and everything else around us exists perceptionally, Therefore, we can interact with the things around us because... Your definition of perception would be... Well, yeah. What is your definition? Perception is what you... How do I say it without perceiving? Perception is what you understand to be the things around you because um, your senses process them that way. And so he says, what if we're processing these things, but what they really are is just... Cognitions. Um, you believe there's a chair, and you want to sit in a chair, so there is a chair, and you can sit your bottom down in it. He would say, even the concept of, we want to sit in the chair, you want to sit in the chair, that, that concept of me, that's still just a cognition. And our bottoms are still just perceived cognitions. And that's why we're just having one cognition interacting with another cognition. Think of it like, okay, think of it like The Matrix. If you've ever seen the movie The Matrix, finds out that the whole world is just a computer simulation. It doesn't really exist, right? Yes, it really does. But it exists as a computer simulation. Is the stuff that's going on in that computer simulation actually going on? You know, well, yes. Physically, well, no. But is it actually going on? 
Yes, it's just going on as a computer simulation. And you can't like try to interact with it. You can't go, well, it's not like I can put my hand through the through the voting. Right, because you're part of the computer simulation. And you're subject to the same physical laws as the rest of the computer simulation because you're part of the same code. Yeah. We'll say dreams are like this. Yeah. It's, I mean, sometimes when what people experience in dreams, it's very realistic while they're in it or even outside of it. It's like, it felt like I did this horrible thing that I did in my dream or it felt like somebody did this thing to me that happened in my dream. And it gets carried through. Yep. So there's a real sense about it, even though it didn't happen out here. But it did happen in here. It did. And that's, and that's, that's actually a good example because that's one of the things Barkley talks about. Is, it's like, so in your dream you went skydiving. So you've never gone skydiving. Well, not physically. But I did in my dream. I'm not going to pretend that that's real skydiving. I'm not going to pretend that that's ex even exactly what skydiving is like. But that really happened in my dream. It's like, what if all that we're going through right now is actually happening, but it's actually happening in, I mean, obviously this is before computers. He's like, what if it's actually happening as a computer simulation? It's not like you can pinch yourself and go, well, I can feel the pinch, therefore I must not be dreaming. You, know, you just prep, you pinch it yourself. That always, that always bothered me when people do that. I'm pinching myself. Well, I can't be dreaming. Like, you just prep, you pinch yourself. So, he's like, what if everything is just in the matrix? And we're just perceiving, but not with eyes, not with ears, not with noses, not with... We're not perceiving with physical senses. We're perceiving cognitively, which we only process as physical senses. I'm eating the steak, and I taste the steak, but it's just because my brain thinks I'm tasting the steak. I know. It seems weird, right? Well, the thing is, if you're tasting the steak, then dang it, why are we getting fat? Because you think you are. <laughs> I think I'm getting skinny all the time, and it does not work. <laughs> because that's the programming code. That's... That's what happens. Okay. So, it says, everything is as real as you are, which means that you perceive it as physical, because we tend to say, well, I'm physical, and if something's real, then it happened in the real physical world. And he's like, no, it did happen, but not physically. Now, you might say, okay, what? And this is just sci-fi. Interestingly, there's a, there's a whole chunk in quantum physics that says, maybe, that, 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 that maybe the basic unit of reality is not matter or energy, but awareness. There's a whole, there's, and I'm not just being like, oh yeah, sci-fi. No, sci. Just leave it to the scientists doing the math. That when we look at it, subatomic particles oftentimes will do things seemingly because we're observing them. Because we expect it to do something, it doesn't. If we expect it to do something else, it changes its quote-unquote physical laws and does something else. You split a photon in half, take those two halves of the photon hundreds of miles away, manipulate one half of the photon, and the other half of the photon does the exact same thing. They're tethered somehow. It's taking Heisenberg's uncertainty principle and saying, uh, what if it's not about uncertainty? What if it's about awareness? It's not just that you can't follow something because the moment you look at it, it changes because it was already moving. It's the moment you look at it, you change it because you were looking at it. There's an actual argument within quantum physics. I'm not even going to go through the whole, just trust me. <laughs> Secular physicists going, um, there's something to be said for this. Freaky. So what Barclay said is the reason I'm going into all this is if the universe, all of our stuff, us, everything, exists primarily on the basis of awareness or perception rather than intrinsic materialism, it all exists because we perceive it exists. How did it all get started? If things are existing because somebody's aware of it, who was the first person to be aware of it? Who's the architect, as it were? It couldn't have just popped into existence the moment somebody started perceiving it, because then how did that perceiver come into existence in the first place? It doesn't work like that. What about all that stuff nobody's currently thinking about? Does that cease to exist? Nobody right now is thinking about the urinal at the bus station in Poughkeepsie, New York. So does the urinal no, cease I to don't. exist? No, it's not existing. Okay, you laugh. You laugh, but I had a philosophy teacher that said exactly that. He's like, the moment you say, yeah, but nobody's thinking about that purple elephant and such, such, such. 
No, I've said that. Now you are, and that's why it exists. Well, that, I guess that's what I've been thinking about while you're talking about this. What about those that have no ability to do something beyond just process something physically? Someone that maybe... There is no physically. Well, but they, they, you know, I'm thinking, I used to work and take care of special needs uh, in their doom, that I mean, really everything was a response to, you put us into their lives, well, actually they couldn't even eat, but you know, you would do something, it was just a purely physical response, not something that they were actually thinking about cognitive. Okay, the How two ways that Barclay would probably respond to that is, one is, but you were thinking. Well, right, but then what about the bed that they're laying in, that that doesn't exist because You didn't, didn't see their bed? But what about them? Because they're laying in the bed. Okay, but he would say, but you were aware that there's a bed, therefore right. there's a bed. But he would also say, on, on some levels, on, <laughs> on some levels they're still aware of. And you might go, but they aren't, they're just physically. He's like, there is no physically. So the things that you say, this is only on an autonomic level, you go, then think of that, instead of being autonomic, think of it as subconscious. But there is no physically autonomic level. It's like, oh, he's on an iron lung. He's just, he's like, there is no iron lung. There is no lung. There is no air. Other than perception of things. And so when we say, ah, oh, but this person's existing solely on a physical level, you'd say, but since there isn't a physical level, no, they aren't. Yep. That's a scary interaction when people are wrong about things. Like, so 2,000 years ago, was the Earth flat because people thought it was? No, because it's not just what you think about it, it's what you actually perceive. It's your awareness of it. So it's your awareness of it. Actually, not too many people thought it was flat. Either. That's a whole other thing. Anyway, but the, the, because there's always some Greek guys sitting there going, no, it's round. I did the math. Yes, Anna. If you have, like, if you don't believe about something. There's a better answer. So could you, like, if you're uh, okay, well, I mean, there's always the people, if you dream you have a heart attack, you have a heart attack. I don't know. But there's a, there's, a bigger, there's a bigger answer to this other than this, which is, and by the way, before I go any further with the answer, this is something that has stumped some of the quantum physicists. They're like, if I genuinely believe this, who's been aware of everything all this time? If the, if the, if the foundation of everything is awareness, who's been aware? How's that been working? And Barclay says, and this is to answer the Earth is flat, and what if there is no air, if I perceive there's no air, there's got to have been a sentience that has always existed. A, an unperceived perceiver holds things in his mind. The Earth isn't flat because that's not the way God perceived it when he created the concept of it. No, just because I think there's no air doesn't mean that God thinks there's no air. Just because the person laying in the bed doesn't perceive the bed doesn't mean God doesn't perceive the bed. And so all of this is ultimately stuff that God has perceived and God has genuinely created. It's not saying it's unreal. He's saying it's unphysical. And so he's like, I'm, I'm addressing Descartes, I'm addressing Locke, I'm addressing Hume, I'm addressing quantum physics, even though nobody knows anything about quantum physics yet. What does Colossians 1.17 say? Anybody remember? Some people might have a Bible. All things hold together. And he's like, yeah, this is why. God is literally holding on. For those of you materialists, you say, well, God is somehow holding physically every atom together and connecting. He's like, or he's holding it in his mind. He's perceiving it. And he says, the only separation then between us and God is the one literally in your own mind. You perceive that there is. You make a distinction between you and, and a relationship with God. You put a wall in your mind between you. Doesn't Romans 12, 2 tell us we need to renew our minds and renew our way of thinking so that we can actually be in relationship to God? Yeah. I remember listening to Rabbi Zachariah earlier this week mentioning about uh, creation versus uh, <laughs> evolved in that. He says, how did an inert thing now have a mind? Barclay's like, oh, I got this. <laughs> I totally got this. Now, again, this is one of those things where it's like, uh, if, you, if you study math, it's like I. I is the square root of negative 1, which, you know, can't possibly be. You can't have a square root of negative 1. Nothing times itself could possibly give you, like, ah, you know, some numbers are irrational, some numbers are unreal. 
You can't use a not real number. You, you can't use irrationality in rational math. That's not fair. It works, and you have to have an eye sometimes. But it's kooky. Really, really, when you think about I, it's just plain kooky. And that's, he's like, I don't care if this sounds kooky or not. It makes certain things make sense. I like this idea. Barclay says. He says it with an Irish accent because he's an Irish. <laughs> now, Samuel Johnson, uh, who's kind of a famous guy at this time, Samuel Johnson still said, ah, oh, this sounds screwy. And he kicks a rock and shouts, I refute it thus. Boom! <laughs> <laughs> rock! Real, hurt my toe, done. Barclay's refuted. Samuel Johnson's a bit of a hoot. <laughs> 1755, Samuel Johnson writes his dictionary. Have you heard of Samuel Johnson in the English dictionary? There have been dictionaries for their languages. You'd have specialized little books about English here and there. But nobody had ever put together an English dictionary, a nice comprehensive dictionary saying, here's how we spell stuff. Here's what stuff means. David Hume had even lamented the elegance and propriety of style have been mu very much neglected among us. Proving the need for consensus on how to spell words like style, right? Style, style. <laughs> up until this point, and you will read, up until the mid-1700s, no two people are spelling stuff the same way. It's all phonetic. Whatever I feel like is phonetic. I spell style with a Z and a Q. Why? Yeah, it's, it's, nowadays we just do that because we go, oh, I don't know. It's like new math, man. Back then they were like, nope, whatever, whatever feels good, do it. But it, it, because this proliferation of books, more and more people are writing things, more and more books are getting published, they're like, it's starting to get silly. That nobody really knows how to spell stuff. That we're all spelling everything quite a bit differently. So we kind of need to stop and figure some of this out. Johnson spends nine years compiling 42,773 entries of every, uh, of the most standardized spellings. He's like, what is the way most people seem to be spelling this word? Because it's not like this is the way it's spelled. There is no this is the way it's spelled in English until 1755, right? There are interesting suggestions as to how to spell things. There's most of us tend to spell it this way, but there is no correct spelling until 1750. There's no authority that uh, yep. even today. <laughs> Other French or Spanish dictionaries? Yep. Other like that French, Spanish, Latin, German, they've got dictionaries that say, here's how you actually spell stuff. English? No. <laughs> I'm not even going to answer that. <laughs> there's so many different ways to take that question. Who's like, until 1755, there is no authority. There is no way of saying, this is the way it is. So, post-1755, now there is. But that could be, if I can just throw out there too, that could be in part because it's kind of uh, an amalgamation of a bunch of different languages. And so, yep. you know, you get some of it here and some of it here. And, and there's various points where, like, you know, different languages are infused by migration of things and or you know French was really in vogue for a really long time and different things like that and so maybe we just it took us a while to decide what we really wanted it to be. I think that is an excellent summation of it because there are some words that you say we got this from French but we kind of like to spell it as if it were German or, or we got that from German but we kind of like to spell it as if it's yeah. We got some loan words from Denmark, but there's just way too many A's in it. You know, so we're going to... Um, even in Shakespeare, if you read Shakespeare, even within the same play, he will spell different words, the same word, different ways. Just because there's no standardized spelling until 1755. So, by the end of it, Samuel Johnson's nearly blind. He's got an army of researchers helping him do all this kind of stuff. It's really his, his house is a horrible mess. One of the innovations, though, of his dictionary was not just that he defined each word, but that he actually gave an example in a sentence of most of them. So he's like, so that you can see, usually from Shakespeare, somebody would say, when hungry thou, should, th thou stoodst staring like an oaf, I sliced the luncheon from the barley loaf. So a luncheon is, uh, comes from the Spanish, but you're writing it kind of like German, and that's what it means. It's, it's, it's the food that you eat at lunchtime. It's like, oh, cool. 
So it became kind of a dictionary of quotations as well of, as of words. It kind of became a one-stop shop with things. Now, I should comment on this. You notice the long S. The thing that always looks like an F. Have you ever noticed this in like stuff in the 1700s? Or you get that thing that looks like thou stoodst staring, and you go foot staring. It's like no, it's not an F. It's an S. It's just a long S. It used to be very common for languages to distinguish the last, the end of a word by showing what the letter looks like differently at the end of the word than in the middle of the word. So like Greek does this with the sigma. It looks like a cursive O in the middle or the beginning of a word, but it looks like a stretched out S if it's at the end of the word. So if you write a word like Simonius, you get that's a sigma and that's a sigma. It's both the same letter. A lot of languages did that. English used to do that. Until recently, you'd use the long S at the beginning or the middle of the word, and you'd use the short S at the end of the word. The Swedes have little marks that they put above there. Yep. Uh, exactly. Yeah, and, um, printers streamlined this because they're like, well, we don't really need... We don't want to have any more typographical errors than we absolutely need to have, and we don't want to make any more keys than we absolutely need to make because these things cost a lot of money to make. And so they're like, can we just get rid of that? But the, one of the few languages nowadays that still makes use of the long S is German. No, they didn't. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. They just do it as a ligature. They take long S and short S, turn it into a ligature called an SF. We have two S's together. No? They're not using SS? So it's just two S's? Okay. Um, okay, that's fine. I, well, maybe they're not using it very often, because I, I was actually just reading something this week, written in, uh, it was a blog in German, they were using SS. In, in general, maybe they did. In general, maybe they did. So maybe even German's gone now. That's it. Nobody's using it anymore. For the longest time, they, they use it as a ligature, so... I didn't even realize this when I was taking German. I'm sitting there going, this, why does it look like a B? It's actually a long S curved into a short S, if you, if you look at what an S set looks like. Cool. Anyway, OK. Lots of people liked uh, lots of people liked Johnson, and they liked this dictionary, but not a lot of people bought it, because it cost like $530 to buy the thing. And not everybody wanted to spend $530 on, on a book, even though it's a good book. They don't want to do it. But it still became the industry standard. Most modern dictionaries set it up kind of the way it is. To, they tell you how to pronounce it. They tell you what it, what it means. They may give you an example of it, etc. In pure Johnson, anti-Barclay style, he once wrote about his accomplishments with our lexicon with a group of words. He said, I am not so lost in lexography as to forget that words are the daughters of earth and things are the sons of heaven. Stuff exists because God said it exists. We put words to them because we decided those words. But those thoughts are just us. But the stuff itself, God made that stuff. Kick a rock. So anyway, even him, even even uh, even Johnson is saying, I'm telling you, even though I spend my whole life about cognitions and words, stuff still exists. Now I've got to totally look up that SM thing. Yeah. <laughs> How did they decide when they played Scrabble who had the race? Whoever had the biggest stick. <laughs> okay, 1756. <laughs> it's that kind of morning, is it? Is that the way this works? <laughs> the Seven Years' War breaks out in 1756. You can also call it the French and Indian War, or the War of the Conquest, or the Third Carnatic War, or the Third Silesian War, or the Pomeranian War, as I like to think of it, the War of All Sorts of Strange Bedfellows. Because <laughs> like everybody's fighting everybody, and everybody has a different name for this seven-year war. Long story short... World War Zero? Yes! This, okay, this really is... We've talked about a couple of different things that are World Wars. This is the first genuinely, straight-up, fits-the-definition World War fought on three or four continents, depending on how you think about it, using all the major powers in Europe. They're all fighting each other, they've all got different alliances, and they're fighting across the globe. So, yeah. Came down to petty squabbles and land grabs and things that exploded into a full-scale war. Everybody was just like, well, now's the time I can get what I want. 
and everything just kept escalating. By the way, this is why for years we've said it's best to deal with issues when they're at the molehill level, right? When there's just a small issue before it builds up into a mountain that seems too big to deal with, which will then explode into a volcano, and then everybody goes, how did it get so bad? Because you didn't deal with it back here, right? You didn't deal with the seeds of the issue, and it built up, and it became something big and ugly. Well, how do we deal with it now? Complicatedly. You really should have dealt with it when it was a molehill. Next time, deal with it when it's a molehill. They should have dealt with it when it's a molehill. So we know England and Spain and France are fighting over the New World, right? War of Jenkins' ear, stuff like that. Yeah, they, these guys have been fighting over this stuff, and they're, they're fighting over land, they're fighting over who gets to sail and ship things in the Americas, so they're not liking each other. Friedrich II, remember Frederick the Great? Uh, Friedrich de Grossa with the SF. Anyway, um, but Friedrich here uh, took advantage of Austria. He's like, right now you've got a relatively weak Austrian empress. I'm going to grab more land for Prussia. We're going to become a major world power. I don't care who I bug by doing this. Russia says, actually, you're taking off the areas of Poland and Lithuania, which is kind of our satellite. Even back then, Russia saw Poland as kind of, well, they're, they're our thing. So you go, okay, so Russia feels threatened and says, well, we'll support Austria against Prussia. And say, Prussia, you don't get to just take everybody's stuff. Austria already had a pact going with France, who already had a pact going with Spain, who was already, if you remember from the last couple of weeks, chafing with Portugal over land rights, right? Remember, the, the, the Pope was like, we're giving large portions of your territory to Portugal because... We want them to be able to have more slaves. So, I use Spain. So, Spain is kind of torqued off with Portugal. And Portugal says, hey, by the way, Great Britain, our land holdings are south of Spain's land holdings. Your land holdings are north of Spain's land holdings. That makes us tacitly allies, right? We're bracketing Spain in the New World. Would you like to be our buddy? And England says, sure, we never liked Spain and France in the begin with, right? Which means that both Great Britain and, Pro and Portugal find themselves technically connected with Prussia. Because they're like, you seem to be fighting the same people we're fighting. So everybody starts fighting one another because they all have these entanglements against each other. The whole thing becomes this big old ugly mess, right? Because what do you do once once you kick this person in the shins, this whole group of people go, well, which side am I on in this? And it just starts getting big and ugly. And so there's fighting in Europe, fighting in Kazunite, North America, there's fighting in India, there's fighting all over the place in this one gigantic war. Here in the Americas, we tend to refer to it as the French and Indian War. There are actually a lot of French and Indian Wars, but if you ever hear anybody just talk about the French and Indian War, this is the one you're talking about. And it's called that because there were two million citizens in the British colonies and only about a half a million citizens in the Spanish and French colonies. Yes, there's more... There's more purple and blue here on the map than red, but there are fewer people in those colonies. Remember, we've, we've talked about that and as to why. So what do you do? If you've got a quarter of the people, maybe twice as much, three times as much land, but only a quarter of the people, how do you win a war over there? You can ship a lot of soldiers over there, but you're still fighting a war over in Europe, too. And you're fighting a war over in India, too. Pardon me? You make allies with the natives. You, 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 you say, we're buddies with you. We don't try to build cities. We just trade furs with you like you like. We're not like those mean old British people. Of course, the British did the same thing. So, the Iroquois, the Cherokee tribes, fought for the English. The Wabanaki, the Ottawa, the Lenape, the Algonquin fought for the French, against the British. So, you have... French and English and Spanish and Cherokee and Lenape and Ottawa and Portuguese and everybody fighting everybody all over the place. By the way, fun fact, is during this conflict that the French encouraged the Allies, their allies, to follow the Iroquois practice of scalping enemies. And they said, we will pay you for every British scalp that you give us. And so we actually help teach Indians how to scalp. Because that's smart. That's not going to come back and bite us, is it? No, no. And the British did the exact same thing. The governor of Massachusetts was paying 40 pounds for a male Indian scalp and 20 pounds for the scalps of women and children under 12. 
Samuel uh, Samuel Johnson's dictionary was four pounds ten shillings, so four and a half pounds, and it was too expensive for people to buy, right? So this is about forty six hundred dollars in today's money for a male uh, adult Native American scalp. So you get like a couple of scalps, you can buy a car, right? This is this is kind of a big deal all the way around. This is a nasty, nasty war. Thousands of people died. By the way, if you're a lit person, this is also the context for Last of the Mohegans, the James Fenimore Cooper novels, the, the Leather Stocking Tales, which are American novels, but the Redcoats are the good guys. So if you read the books, it, I remember when I was a kid reading the books going, so I'm rooting for the British? This is right before the Revolutionary War, but I'm supposed to be rooting for the British characters? Yes, they're the good guys. And almost every interpretation you'll ever see on screen, including this one, not really. I mean, because they're redcoats. We can't actually depict redcoats as good guys. What with them being evil, right? Because we fought a whole war against them. Redcoats can't be good guys. So even though in the books the redcoats are the good guys, almost every movie adaptation you'll ever see, you go, well, not really. Oh, funky little time in history. So, the war has this profound effect on the colonies. Sets a major foundation. First off, you get an entire generation of young Americans that gain combat experience as young officers. So, in the 1750s, you're a lieutenant, you're a captain, and you're learning heavy combat skills. So, 20 years later, you're now a middle-aged guy with lots of combat experience. So, once the Revolutionary War breaks out, we have some very well-trained soldiers. Huh. Including a young Colonel George Washington in his 20s here that is that gains all sorts of fame and, and by being this war hero fighting alongside his beloved friend General Thomas Gage. If you know anything about Revolutionary War history, Thomas Gage is the one that's basically running British side of the Revolutionary War. 20 years before, these guys were working together. They liked each other. They respected each other. Twenty years later, they became the most bitter enemies you could possibly imagine. It's just an interesting time in history. It's extremely formative. It's also formative because the map changes. This is the way it's looked out for a little bit. I mean, we've had we've had some different wars here and there, but this is essentially the way the map has been looking for a while, right? Spain has this area. France has Louisiana. And the British have these colonies. Isn't that the way you normally think of it? Louisiana being French, Mexico being Spanish, Massachusetts being British. Well, all of a sudden, a defeated France has to turn over half their territory to Spain. And Spain has been weakened by all of this. So Spain now owns Louisiana. That is Spanish territory. And the other half is now taken over by British uh, troops and British colonies. So now, as of the end of the, the, the Seven Years' War, this is the way America looks. There's no French holdings at all. It's all just Spanish and American. British. Which is not the way we tend to think of it. But if you'll notice, England not only took over French territory, and they took all of, all of Canada here, they also took Florida. What they decided was, you just get this whole coastline. This gets to be you guys all the way around. By the way, this is why Canada refers to this conflict as the War of the Conquest. It's not, it's not the French and Indian War, because there's still a lot of French and Indians floating around in Canada. To them, this is the war where we conquered Canada. So, kind of a funky time in history. And if you go, but didn't we buy Louisiana from the French? Yeah, we did. Which suggests there's going to be another turnover at some point, right? Yeah. Anyway, the map of Europe is changing. See, you got to just. Keep, this is me going. Come back next week. It's not just going to be next week. It's going to be a little, a couple weeks. But the map of Europe changes, though. Not necessarily the borders. Some of the borders change, but for the most part, it's all the different entangled alliances. It's a big political change in Europe. For instance, Sweden. Happy little Sweden over here. Sweden is an ally of Russia's at the beginning of the Seven Years' War. 
Like, we're going to work with Russia, and we're going against Prussia, because Prussia's doing land grabs everywhere. And we're right near Prussia. We're just, we're just across the bay. Well, pardon me? See, I can't say stuff like that because I'm half German. So I am too. All right. So Prussia is just just going mine, 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 mine all over. Actually, Friedrich is going mine, 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 mine all over the place. And so so Sweden sits there and says, "Yeah, we're going to we're going to stand against uh, against Prussia. We're going to stand alongside Russia because Russia doesn't like Prussia either." And then halfway through, Russia goes, "Well, why don't we just take Sweden?" You're not just you're not just an ally. You're part of Russia now. Yeah, and now it's it. So uh, then, and then by the end, they get their own independence again, and everybody at the end of the Seven Years' War goes, "All right, do over." Everybody, seriously, the trees are all like, everybody bounces back to the borders you had before. A few minor changes here and there, but. Everybody, it's, we're rebooting to 1755. You know, just go back. 1756 never happened. Um, but as you can imagine, Sweden's sitting there going, because uh, you know, it's like Prussia is attacking us, Russia's attacking us, and we're surrounded by Prussia and Russia still. So even though we, there's a reboot and we go back to being our own country, how long is that going to last? Sweden does not have a warm, fuzzy feeling at the end of the Seven Years' War. Prussia! Right, they have to go back to their 1755 borders. Okay. But now they are a major world power. If anything, they are the major world power on the continent now. They have emerged as being the guys. Because they won. The whole Prussia, Portugal, Britain coalition. If you can say anybody won the Seven Years' War, it was them. And, and so they are sitting there kicking the Austrians and the Holy Roman Empire to the curb, saying... You guys are old school. You, you sit there speaking German in your empire, except your empire is just a bunch of city-states and stuff, right? Your, your empire is a joke. Austria, your Austria-Hungarian Habsburg empire keeps shrinking more and more and more. It's a joke. Your tapestries are old. Your castles are old. Your soldiers are old. We are new, shiny, fresh. We're like Kyoto, the greats. Uh, armies. Everything's shiny, new. Everything's everything's clicking. We're all a modern military. You guys are going down. Even though you may not be toppled yet, increasingly, everybody is looking at you kind of the way a lot of Americans look at Europe. You go, <laughs> you used to be something, didn't you? Oh, well, your castles are very nice, and we like to look at your tapestries, but we're kind of the going thing. And of course, we're now the way other countries are now looking you know, Looking at that, there's a lot of countries looking at America now going, ah, you used to be something, didn't you? But now your economy is shot, and your military is, is a hollow echo of what it used to be. You're not going to last too much longer. Instead of being this bloated confederation, Central Europe is starting to see itself as German, not just Germanic. For the first time, you start hearing people referring to themselves as German. I am a German. Not I'm part of the Germanic peoples that live in Austria, or part of the Germanic peoples that live in all the city-states in this patchwork quilt that we call the Holy Roman Empire. No, I am a German. And so you're going to start getting this, this tight, lean sense of a German empire. And we're going to see that start to emerge here. Spain, former world power, right? Never, never does really bounce back. There are times that Spain gets better, but in general, since the mid-1700s, when you think of Spain, do you think major world power? The great Spanish space program? How Spain invaded China? You know, no. I mean, Spain, Spain just kind of gets crunched and never does really pop back. Portugal, even though they were on the winning side, never does really pop back. It's just so big a deal. They all got hit so hard. Even France gets decimated. Their navy is all but destroyed. And so they have to start backing up and retreating into themselves to try to rebuild, and they start plotting their revenge on England. And it's really, they even refer to the plan as the revenge war. So really, the French are sitting there going, yeah, well, next time, we're just going to take our three soldiers and go home, and we're going to train some new soldiers. We're totally coming. We're to don't look at me. We're totally going to go back and beat you. We're going to beat you up later. And it's like, back to France right now. 
As part of that, they have to retreat from India, because up until this point, France has had a major pres presence in India. And England goes, okay, we'll take it. And England basically gets the, the, the run of India. They, they control the whole region, almost the whole region, for about the next two full centuries. By the time, I know that, uh, what was that? Mid-1800s? Uh, mid 1800s? Uh, 1857? Was there? Okay, late 1700s, but then 18... Somewhere in the mid-1850s, there, there was an attempted rebellion um, that got put down, and then they instituted the British Raj. And so, yeah, for like two centuries, England just sits and goes, this is ours, and stomps on it, does whatever they feel like doing, until finally... India gets their independence in, in 1947. But that's a result of the Seven Years' War, too. Is England's control of India comes out of the Seven Years' War. It's really kind of an important war to keep your head around. England is rising in prominence. All of a sudden, England is a major player because they were on the winning side. And so you go, well, we just got a lot of land in the Americas. We just got India. We just got all sorts of trade concessions. Huh. We're going to start building a British empire. So for the first time, you really start hearing people talking about a British empire. Nowadays, we think, of it, oh, the British empire. And we use that term like it's always been that way. Like, no, that's kind of a relatively new thing. Like, well, there's been an Austrian empire. It's been a Holy Roman empire made up of a bunch of Germanic people, Germans. Now we'll have a British empire. Yay! Actually, they're overextending themselves because they're almost broke. It's been extremely expensive. Every, nobody comes out of this thing unscathed. It's like getting in a knife fight. You go, nobody's going to go home happy in a knife fight. Even if you win the knife fight, you're not going to win happily. That's the Seven Years' War. And so Britain's sitting there going, I have no money whatsoever. So even though I technically won, even though I've got a lot of navy and a lot of army and we're doing great, but I still have to feed those people. I still have to pay them. And I don't have any money. Which means I've got to start taxing people. I've got to start doing... So I'm going to start saying, all right, um... Where do I get money? I can try to invade Europe and steal stuff and take the... i tell you what it'll do. No, no, no. You just tax the places we already have. Colonists. Pardon me? Colonists? We have colonists. You're right. We can just tax them. How about we bleed India dry and tax the heck out of our American colonists? That'll pay for it. They won't mind. Right? And they had no representation in Parliament, but they found an The rest of Europe is now taking notice of them, too. The rest of Europe is going, I don't think I trust you. Again, for those of you that have played Risk or played Diplomacy, the person who's winning is that the people go, I want to be on his side. Sort of. Or is it the people go, okay, so you're the one to take down. Sort of. It's like that with England. Everybody wants to be England's friend. Nobody wants to be their close friend. Because everybody's waiting for how they can stab England in the back. So, it's both a really good time and a really bad time to, for instance, become King of England, right? Because you go, we just won, we're kicking it, but we have no money and nobody likes us. But everybody's trying to be nice to us, but they don't trust us. This is where Georg Wilhelm Friedrich becomes King of England. Actually, I'm going to call him George William Frederick. And the reason I'm going to call him George William Frederick is because he's the first Hanover king to actually be born and raised in England. All the other ones have been born and raised in Hanover, nice German kind of people. But since English is technically his first language, I'm going to call him by the English version of his name. His mama called him Georg, we're calling him George. Okay? George Augustus, Georg Augustus, King George II, had stuck around for like 33 years in office. He'd even outlived his own son, Friedrich. And so that means that once George II, Georg Augustus, dies, it goes to his grandson, George William Frederick. So now we have King George III. If that sounds familiar, yes, that's the guy who's the king during the Revolutionary War. The new King George made it very clear what kind of a king he wanted to be. He had his coronation speech all written, but he's adding some words to it. He adds to it with no German accent, first king without a German accent, born and educated in this country, I glory in the name of Britain. I am not a Hanover king. Maybe my house, but I'm English. My dad, my granddad, my great-granddad, 
They're from Hanover. They put Hanover first. I'm putting England first. Crowd goes wild. Everybody's like, we like this guy! Because remember, they went wild with Queen Anne, who's like, dude, I am the first British monarch you've had for a while. And they're all like, we love you! German, 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 German. This guy! In his coronation speech! By the way, let me add, I'm totally English, like you. And they all go, booyah! And all the other Germanic Hanovers sitting there going, Anyway, no, 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 no. Okay. So, being a good patriotic American who loves good patriotic American history, I'm predisposed not to like King George III. Right? I can't like him because he's mean. He's bad. He's mean, right? This is the guy we rebelled about. We said, he's just a German. Right? That was one of the things that people were writing about in the Revolutionary War. We don't have to follow this German king. You know, actually, he's the first one that really isn't. They didn't have a German accent. English is his first language. His coronation he even said I'm English. He's just German. He just serves German interests. We don't have to believe him. And he's a horrible king. Actually, he's, he's pretty good. He's very constitutional. Shut up. He's a horrible king. Do you remember him from Schoolhouse Rock? <laughs> this is the fat, rouged king who's just horribly greedy, looking over there across the land, going, how do I get more money from the Americans? He's bad. How many people remember this cartoon? Okay. It's the shop around the world started the revolution. They could sing the song. Point is, is he's bad. I really, really don't want to like him. And I kind of like him. I don't want to like him. But I kind of like him. He's actually kind of a decent guy. He puts England first as an English king instead of Hanover. And I got to respect that. But he's also a devout Christian. He prays every day. He reads his Bible and, and believes it. He actually stands for stuff. He loves reading books. He writes he writes synopses of every book that he's ever read and keeps a journal of, of the synopses of all of his books, and that journal gets published so that people love the synopses that he writes of all these great books. Kind of, kind of, yeah. A little crazy. And he actually chews out his brothers for all their, their mistresses and scandals and things, saying, that's not God honor you got to remember, this is a time when it was common, it was expected that nobles would have mistresses, even their own little, like, harems. Not only because, well, of course, men are going to do that, but they're like, I've got to keep them off the streets. I don't want our king just going and picking up trollops everywhere. So, since he doesn't have, obviously the king isn't going to want to sleep with the queen, so we'll have special apartments for his mistresses, and we'll just keep it kind of in-house and, and organized and controlled. That's the way it commonly was. But not with George! Even though he'd been in love with somebody else, desperately in love with somebody else, he only met his homely bride, uh, Charlotte, on their wedding day. She was described as being very ugly, what with her flat nostrils and dark complexion. Actually, the funny thing is, if you look at paintings of her, now granted, they're always going to try to make people look better in their estimations, but every painting I've ever seen of Charlotte, she looks nice. I mean, even, if the, even, even as I look at it, I'm like... I, I don't agree with your synopsis of what constitutes pretty or ugly, but even the painters are like, they like her. It's hard not to like her. And so even though he'd been in love with somebody else, even though he only met his wife on their wedding day, and as he wrote in his diary, the interest of my country shall ever be my first care, my own inclination shall ever submit to it. I have to put my country first. I am born for the happiness or misery of a great nation. Consequently, I often have to act contrary to my passion. It's not about what I want. It's about what's good for England. And so I'm, I'm, and I'm happy to do that. I go, okay, you, you got some guts. But they remained faithfully married and devoted to one another for 57 years. He never took a mistress. He never did anything like that. He just stuck with her. And they loved each other desperately. They had 15 children together. 15 children! And later on, as George started falling victim to dementia and started losing his mind, she was his rock. She stayed with him. She supported him and encouraged him. And he, he would write that she's the thing that kept him going and kept him stable. I kind of like him. I can't help but like him. Now, his madness might have been at least somewhat exacerbated by the fact that he used a lot of arsenic in his hair as hair product, which stuff does stuff to you. So probably shouldn't stick a lot of arsenic on your head every day. Just, I'm just saying. 
1763, George made the first in a series of unfortunate decisions about the British colonies. Remember what's going on in America, right? Britain now owns Canada and Florida. But there's still a lot of angry Native Americans floating around. Even though you technically made peace with France and Spain, and France is out of the picture, there's a lot of unhappy Native Americans who say, I don't trust my British neighbors. So what do you do? Your king of England? What do you do? You say, tell you what, I'm going, I'm going to make a proclamation that no English settlers get to move into Indian lands west of the Mississippi. All that is your land. Knock yourselves out. British citizens instead should only move north and south. Move into Canada, move into Florida. Let's occupy the areas that we've taken. That makes good sense, doesn't it? You placate the Native Americans. You actually get British citizens into Canada and into Florida because it's your territory. It makes good sense. There's a lot of Native Americans whose native land is west of the Mississippi. True. But we're already there, so. We're not going not to tell them we're leaving. We're just going to tell... Plus, those were the ones that primarily were working with us. You know, the Iroquois, the Cherokee, and stuff like that. Some of the other ones, the Ottawa, what have you, the Shawnee, are, are west of the Mississippi. So all those ones that don't like us, we're not going to go into your lands. If you're an American colonist in the British colonies, how do you take this? You just shut us down. You just said, okay, you don't get to go into the territory over here. You do realize this is some good prime area here. This is this is over here. This looks good. And we, yeah. But isn't that Spanish territory? Wow, wow, wow. But it's <laughs> there are very few Spaniards here, right? Nobody's sitting over here. Well, it is technically Spanish territory. Nobody's sitting over here, and and we're growing. We got two million people. We need some elbow room. And you tell us we have to go into Canada and Florida, which is bad. But you're telling us we can't do this. And the moment you tell us we can't do this, we realize, but that's where all the good stuff is. We just fought and died for seven years for you, and you're telling us what we can do on our own continent. This is the interesting thing. I'll go back to what Michael just said. They weren't seeing it as, these are British holdings, and so we can go anywhere there are British holdings. They're seeing it as, this is our continent. I'm an American. My dad was an American. My grandpa was an American. Who are you, German king? I'm actually English. Who are you, German king, to tell me what I can do in my own continent? You're an entire ocean away. You don't know nothing. And this is going to start. Bucking. 1762. Pyotr III becomes emperor of the Russias. You remember Pyotr III, don't you? Emperor for about a minute and a half. Nobody cares about does not look like a strong guy. You know why? Because he isn't. So what really matters is that this is the year that Catherine the Great becomes Empress of the Russians. That's what really matters. And that's where we'll pick it up next week. But I want you to see how even though we didn't talk that much about church theory and what's going on in the church, do you see how what's going on in the rest of the world kind of changes how people are looking at things? All of a sudden, England has become a major power. All of a sudden, Spain and Portugal have been downplayed. Even though they were both on opposite sides of it, France has been downplayed. By the way, what's the major dominant religion in Spain, France, and Portugal? Catholicism. What's the major dominant religion in England and Prussia? So again, you see Protestant taking a more important political stage. The Protestant countries are the ones that are making all the big waves. The, uh, the Catholic countries, uh, like Austria-Hungary and the Holy Roman Empire, and the, you know, these are all taking a back step now. So for the next chunk of time, it's going to be all these Protestant countries that are going to be starting to, to rattle their sabers against the other countries. That's going to make a difference. So even though we're talking primarily about political things, there's some repercussions on the church and how we view different things that are going on. We'll pick up some of those next week. <laughs> okay, all right. I just want you to know, so everybody here is... Well, did you just check it on your phone? I checked it on Anne's. Actually, they spelled it on the 1996, which no one had more thought over it. But anyways, no, they uh, spelled it for the majority of the 1996, they got the 
I, I, I love to read my grammar rules. You just go, well, why did, why, okay. I'll tell you what, let's, with that important tidbit of information. No, it is helpful enough, thank you. Let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for all that's come before us. Help us, Lord, to understand that the context of things is important. Help us to look at our own context and our own politics, our own church life and our own city and our own country. Help us to see help us to see how dominoes fall and how everything affects everything else. And I pray, Lord, help us to place you first and foremost in what we're doing and why we're doing it. We give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.